You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. an op-ed piece that was written in USA Today by Baronelle Stutzman. If you've been watching the news, she was the florist in Washington State that um, that appealed her case to the United States Supreme Court and and did not want to to make um, individual, personalized um, arrangements for a same-sex wedding. And the Supreme Court this week refused to hear her case, um, which uh, leaves her in a in a in a real mess. Um, this letter was written right before um, that decision was made. As I discussed the engagement story of my longtime customer and friend, hugged him goodbye, hugged him and said goodbye. The Supreme Court was the last thing on my mind. Little did I know that conversation in 2013 would lead me to the high court, which I asked to review my case. If it says no, I risk facing financial ruin. That longtime customer was Robert Ingersoll. As a floral designer and owner of Arlene's Flowers in Richmond, Washington, I served Rob for nearly a decade, creating dozens of unique arrangements for Valentine's Days and other important events. I knew Rob was gay, but that never mattered. I loved working with him. Over the years, Rob's only request that I could not accept was to create floral designs celebrating his same-sex wedding. Because my Christian faith teaches that marriage is the union of a man and a woman, I cannot take part in celebrating a different understanding of marriage. For me, a wedding is different from an event like Valentine's Day because it is a sacred ceremony for a sacred union, and I am so personally involved in celebrating it. I never expected to be sued, but I care for Rob deeply, so I took his hand in mind, gently explained my religious conflict, gave him the names of other floral designers, discussed his engagement, hugged him, and said goodbye. Soon after, my state government and the American Civil Liberties Union sued me not only as a business owner, but also as an individual. At first, it was hard for me to accept that my friend who initially said he understood my decision and recognized that I expressed it as kindly as I could, partnered with the ACLU to sue me. But my faith calls me to love people, not hold a grudge. And I miss seeing Rob. I wish he'd come back so that I could serve him another decade. This is my second time appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court. The first time it told the Washington Supreme Court to reconsider my case after the masterpiece cake shop decision which condemned government hostility toward the religious beliefs of Jack Phillips for declining to create a wedding cake celebrating a same-sex marriage. But the Washington court did not consider the religious hostility against me. It acknowledged that courts and judges who decide cases act with hostility, but leaves open that those who prosecute cases can. 
It recited word for word most of its first decision against me, which is forcing me back to the U.S. Supreme Court. Part of what I tell the justices is the same thing that I tell people when they ask me why I decline Rob's request. I explain what my wedding work involves and how my participation is a celebration of marriage. For a typical wedding client, back before this lawsuit took away my wedding business, I discuss with the bride and groom their wedding plans and get to know their relationship and personalities. I spend weeks creating dozens of custom floral designs that include not just flowers but also fabrics, pictures, and other objects. I bring those designs to the ceremony and I decorate the venue with my centerpieces in the wedding party with my bouquets, boutonnieres, and corsages. I am personally involved in celebrating these weddings. Sometimes I need to calm the bride and her bridesmaids, and in one case, I help clean the bridal gown just before they walk down the aisle. Doing this well requires an artist like me to pour my soul into the event, to believe in the celebration. As happy as I am to serve gay customers, I cannot take part in wedding ceremonies, events I view as sacred that violate my faith. Rob deserved a floral designer who could give, who could give her all to the makings of a wedding success. Because of my faith, I couldn't be that person. That's why I gave him the names of three other floral artists. The, the message of many power players in the culture is that you need to get on board with the revolution or be prepared to pay dearly. If you will open your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 2. And I want to read this next letter from Jesus to the church in the city of Tharatara. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, say this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Tharatara who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, and I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are, we are living in difficult days. Where it is easy to fall off in any number of ways. And so we pray that you would give us the mind of Christ. Father, I pray that you would make us effective in reaching every single person that Jesus died to save. I pray this would not be words. That you would make us a people who are reaching. That you are using to bring conversion. And that then we grow them up to maturity. Until you return. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Let me start um, with a quick uh, introduction. This is... This is the longest of the seven letters to these churches. And of this church, we really know the least um, about them. It's interesting that the longest letter also goes to the least significant of all the cities that he's going to address. This, which is a sermon uh, in and of itself. Where, where Jesus pours himself out to those who are easily looked over. This city, Thyatira, I have a, a picture of where it is. It was really located in the middle of nowhere. It was not a cultural um, center of any significance. What it was, was an industrial center. And this is archaeological evidence, as we're going to see with the Bible's evidence. And, and also from inscriptions that this was, this was a manufacturing center. And it was known for manufacture of all kinds of things. Of, of linen and, and bronze, uh, leather work. Um, this purple dye. Do, do you remember? Do you remember Lydia, in in Acts chapter sixteen? Beautiful words that that Paul goes and they're preaching to a group of women who are assembled there. And the Bible says that as she was listening, God opened her heart to receive the things spoken by Paul. Do you remember how she was described? As a seller of purple fabrics, which is one of the things that Thyatira was famous for. And so she is in Philippi. Let me show you the, 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 the map here. You see that red dot? There's Turkey down below. Um, to the right, there's Syria. And then you go on down into Israel. If you look over to the left of Thyatira, there's Greece. Philippi is located on the other side of that, of that sea there on the left. And so she is, this is, this is exactly what we think of in, in Thyatira. Here's a place where these, where these great things were made and then taken to the rest of Europe to be sold. It's very important for us to note that trade guilds were very important in Thyatira. Again, this is known by inscriptions that have been found. And they're similar to our trade unions. Or to our professional associations. You think, about, you think about the bar. You think about the American Medical Association. You think about the American Dental Association. You think about the National Associations of Realtors. Or even the Screen Actors Guild. These, these associations are, are very important in the life of this industrial city, Thyatira. So there's the background. Let's jump into the text. And here's, here's what I want us to see. Three things... That I just want to highlight, and the, and the more I study, the more there is to discuss. But I'm going to focus on three things. 
First, I want us to see the power of hope. Secondly, the necessity of love and truth. And then finally, the promise for those who persevere. First, the power of hope. As simple as I can say it, you boil it all down, what do you want? I want to be like Jesus. What do you want to accomplish as a pastor? I want to help people to be like Jesus. I I want us to think like Jesus, to feel like Jesus, to hate what Jesus hates, to love what Jesus loves, to process things the way Jesus processed things, to react to things the way Jesus reacted to things, to be like Jesus. And, And... this is Jesus' goal. There's a, there's a little nugget down in verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds to the end. He wants us to resist every temptation and distraction so that we keep his deeds. We do his work. We act like him. We live like him until he comes. Before we dig into some of the details of what Jesus is about to say, I want us to notice the heart behind everything that he says. This this heart drives everything that he's going to say to this church. And one thing in particular stuck out to me, and that is that this, Jesus knew and he valued the power of hope. Jesus knew and he valued the power of hope. This, this week I've been reading in the book of Isaiah. And where I am right now in the book of Isaiah, we are, are just coming out of the darkest period in Israel's history. What we have in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 1 through 39, is this strong warnings of judgment. Darkest time in Israel's history. But then what we have in Isaiah 40 through 66 is God proclaiming hope that He's going to send a Savior who's going to shepherd His people, who's going to gently hold His nursing ewes and lead His lambs. It's just radical, unexpected grace. He, he calls Himself the Holy One of Israel who's absolutely dedicated to rescuing for Himself a people who at this point are headlong and running away from Him. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Go, go home and read 1 Corinthians and have one highlighter, like a yellow highlighter in your hand and highlight every problem in the church. You read 1 Corinthians and they got all kinds of problems in the church. But, but hold a, like a green highlighter and highlight everything kind that Paul says about the church. Even though there's all kinds, this dead church is messed up. But he calls them things like saints, the church of God, those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. He reminds them that God who called them is faithful and will completely save them. Jesus does the same thing to his disciples over and over and over. They're they're a group of messed up people and they keep on messing up. And yet he keeps on promising that he is going to set them on 12 12 thrones to judge the earth. And he's doing it right here in this letter of Thyatira. Notice how Jesus notices the good. Look at verse 19. 
I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than the first. In just a second, we're going to dive a little deeper into what he's saying to them. But for now, just simply notice that in spite of everything that's wrong in this church, Jesus sees and he praises what is right. Verse 19, I know your deeds. And aren't those sweet words? Like, like, like here they are. They got lots of things. Jesus says, that stuff that you're doing, nobody else sees it. But I see it. I have, I have eyes like flames of fire. And I see it. I, I see what you're doing in secret. I see how you're loving people. I see how you're serving people. I see your perseverance. I, I think we need to be like little Marys. Remember Mary and Martha? Martha's all working. And here's Mary. And she comes and sits at the Savior's feet. I, I think we ought to be like little Marys and come gather around Jesus and, and learn his heart. And here, here's, here's what he's going to teach us this morning. See what's good. See the good. Is it not true that when we look at our marriages, for example, isn't it easy to see everything that's wrong? Jesus says, see the good. He sees. He knows. He praises the good. When we look at our kids... When we look at our parents, just like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? See the good. Celebrate the good. When you look at, on, your, on your job site, with your boss, with your co-workers, see the good. Be like Jesus and see the good. And what's most relevant in this text is when we look at our church, just like Jesus, we need to see what is good. And let's be honest, there's plenty wrong. There's, there's plenty wrong. And don't think that Jesus, is not, he's getting ready to throw down on what is wrong. But notice that first he sees the good. Celebrate the good. Now, j- just to be clear, did you hear me say that turn a blind eye to sin? D- did you hear me say, don't worry about trying to improve? Did you hear that? I didn't say that. Jesus is going to address what is wrong. But in verse 19, and then again in verses 24 through 27, Jesus focuses on what is good. This is simple. But it is very important that we get this. That seeing the good and celebrating the good is actually a powerful weapon in overcoming what's wrong. Verses 20 through 23. I want you to notice that Jesus leverages the power of hope. Look at verse verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Can you see in that text Jesus leveraging hope? Some of you are probably thinking, Hope? Pastor Tommy, you lost your mind. There, there's no hope in verses 20 through 23. You're, you're seeing things in the text that aren't there. What I see in verses 20 through 23 are condemnation. I want to, I want to encourage you, before you say that, to look even more carefully at the text. And ask yourself this question. Why is Jesus saying these hard words to Thyatira and ultimately to us? What's his heart? What's his motive? What's his goal? Here we have in this church, there is a, a, a self-proclaimed wicked prophetess who must have been a woman of incredible influence in that body. She's being judged. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent. In verse 23, those who are called her children, those who share her absolute commitment to stay in their sin, Jesus promises to slay them. But, look at verse 22. And you tell me in verse 22, what's his goal for those who follow her, even those who are committing adultery with her. What's his goal for them? That they would repent. Like, this is, we, need to, we need to get this. These are people living in the church in sexual immorality, and what's Jesus' heart for them? That they would repent. That they, and most importantly for us, look at verse 23. What's his goal for all of us who are watching all of this go down? I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. His goal is for repentance. Do you see how hopeful that is? Like, what does Jesus promise to those who repent? Absolute forgiveness. Though your sin is as scarlet, I will wash it as white as snow. We say it all the time, but we need to hear it even more often than we say it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He suffered and bled. He stood under the wrath of God in the place of sinners. That He might earn forgiveness for guilty sinners. This, this what appears at first glance, verses 20 through 23, and I'll just, I'll just notice here in the text, I'm not, I'm not stretching this text. Notice verse 21. 
I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her, those who are guilty with her, I'll throw them into great tribulation unless they, who's the they? Those who commit adultery with her. Unless they repent of her deeds. This is an invitation to change. This is an invitation to start over. This is an invitation to be forgiven. You want to hear a great promise from Jesus? 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now you tell me, in those verses, who is he talking about? What sin is he willing to forgive and to cleanse? What might look like condemnation. Jesus is actually leveraging the power of hope. There is hope even for the sexually immoral idolaters in this church. Jesus loves them and he's calling them to repent. Then, he ends his letter, as we'll soon see, with some of the most encouraging words in the whole Bible. And so notice, he starts out with encouragement. He ends with great hope. And even in his correction, his love and rest has has love and restoration written all over it. Jesus knew the power of hope. And so I, I just want to ask some incredibly important questions for you. Here's question number one. Are you among those? Who have received this forgiveness and have been cleansed of all your sin? Or are you still like on the sidelines watching him promise it? But for whatever reason, that forgiveness and that cleansing isn't yours. Jezebel, notice even Jezebel. I wish we had time to go back to the Old Testament and see. This is the most wicked woman in all the Bible. This, or the, whoever this lady is in the church, her name's probably not Jezebel. She's just certainly, she, she's acting a lot like Jezebel. Even her, notice his heart, even for her, verse 21, I gave her time to repent. She didn't want to repent. So maybe that's you. Jesus Christ is offering you complete forgiveness. Do you want it? Trust Him. Confess your sin. Lay it before Him. Walk away from it. Trust Him to cleanse you of it. Maybe you're on the sidelines because you don't believe that He can actually do that for you. It does not matter how dirty your hands are. How filthy and dark your heart is. Jesus Christ is offering you complete forgiveness. If you don't have it, don't even wait to the rest of the sermon. 
Trust Him right now and receive it. Second question. If you have this hope that Jesus has offered, is your life characterized by a deep sense of hope even in the face of deep difficulty? Jesus is offering hope. If you say, well, I believe in Jesus. I've been cleansed of my sins. I know that Jesus loves me and he's forgiven me. Is your life characterized by hope? Are you channeling the spirit of Eeyore or are you channeling the spirit of Christ? It's just easy to say, well, I believe I'm forgiven. I believe in Jesus and to live our lives as if what we're facing in the future is defeat. That's not true. Jesus is coming, He's winning, He's coming and reigning, and He's bringing His people with Him. He wins. I know the headlines look bad. He wins. Let's live as a people who have hope. Third question. Let's just get maybe more practical. Ask yourself. I see Jesus. He knows how to leverage the power of hope. Here's a question. In your relationships, are you leveraging the power of hope? The people who spend time with you. This is, I'm asking myself this question. The people who get to spend time with me, do they leave my presence built up the way Jesus builds up in this passage? Even when I have to have hard conversations. This, this is a hard conversation to have. But we need to notice that there's hope all over the place. We have to have hard conversations with our spouses. We have to have hard conversations with our kids. We have to have hard conversations with the people who work for us and the people we work for. We have to have hard conversations in the church. But here's the question. Are people leaving your presence with a sense of hope? Of being built up? Are you better at building up or are you better at tearing down? If you want to be like Jesus, let's repent. Of, of tearing people down. And let's learn like him. Of, to build people up. Now, I want to be clear. Encouragement is not the same as tolerance. Which, which actually leads us to, to the next point. That I think this text wants us to see. And that is the necessity of love and truth. What we have in these 12 verses are some of the sweetest, most hopeful words and some of the sharpest words in all the Bible. And there they are. On the same page. To the same church. Written on the same piece of paper. To this church. Do you remember the, remember the situation in the Ephesian church? By the way, Pastor Chris is not here because little Gus has an ear infection. And I forgot to mention that. Um... But remember, he, he preached on the church of Ephesus. What's, what's the church? Of, what's the church of Ephesus have going for it? I'll give you a little hint. You can look back to chapter two, verse one, and following. What's that? They have they have works 
But what's lacking at the church of Ephesus? Yeah. They, they, they've got their doctrine right. They're doing the work right. They're persevering in that. The problem is they're doing it with a heart. It's not a heart of love. It's, their love is dried up. I want you to notice that basically exactly the opposite is happening here in Thyatira. They're all over the love. Notice verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance. They're an active church. They're full of good deeds. They're doing more now than they did at first. Remember remember the Ephesian church? He's He's like, I want you to do the deeds you did at first. Here, they're doing even better. And their motives are good. Their their deeds are driven by love and faith. What do you think Jesus wants us to take away from verse 19? What's Jesus' heart for his church according to verse 19? What does he praise when he sees it in verse 19? He wants us actively growing in love, in faith, in service, and then to persevere in that work. According to verse 20 through 24, what does Jesus want for his people? Truth. Doctrinal purity. Moral purity. According to verse 25, what does Jesus want for his people? You love well. You believe the truth. Now, verse 25, what does he want us to do? Keep going. Hold it fast. Hold it fast. It's easy, I think, in verse 25 for us to read that as individuals. Hold fast. Hold that fast. Don't we praise the Lord that for 105 years, Lula Coley held it fast. And she went to the grave trusting in Christ. And It's easy to read verse 25 and think, that's all verse 25 has for us. I want it, but look at the last. Hold fast until when? Until I come. Now, I don't know when he's going to come. But it's very likely most of us won't be here when he comes. And so if he's telling us, he's telling the church, I want you to hold fast until I come. Do you see, it's not just about Angela Morofsky holding fast until he comes. It's not just about Tobias Hullett holding fast until he comes. We've got to hold fast as a body until he comes. Which means our ministry must be multi-generational. I'm so glad we sang that song today. We must invest in our children so that our children... It's not enough for you to hold fast to Christ. You want your great, 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 great grandchildren to hold fast to Christ. It's not enough if every single one of us in this room make it to heaven. Soon we're going to be dead. We want the next generation of people who are sitting... This is why we must give ourselves... Chris and I have been trying like, to, just, to just boil it down. Let's focus. It's so easy to be distracted. I am easily distracted. There's been lots of things in the last year that's distracted us. We want to focus. What are we going to focus on? 
Let's focus on God's people walking with Jesus. Let's focus on radical love for the body. Just like we see in verse 19. And let's multiply disciples. So that we can obey verse 25. If we don't make disciples, we cannot obey verse 25. Regardless of how personally you hold fast. Step back and... Notice what Jesus is calling for. Deep, practical, self-giving love, verse 19, while holding firmly to the truth. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate. In this culture, it is very important, I think, we ought to underline that word tolerate. And notice, it's what Jesus has against this church. That they tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things, sacrifice to idols. You have this influential woman in the church who sees herself as a prophetess. She's leading God's people astray. Notice, she's leading my bondservants astray so they eat They commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. They're worshiping idols. Now, there's speculation about what's going on. What what is this lady up to? It could be something like we find in 1 Corinthians 5. You remember 1 Corinthians 5? There's a guy who's living in immorality with a family member. And the church is is not addressing it. The church is celebrating it, and it seems that they're celebrating it because, listen, we love grace so much. We love free grace so much that that's, we're fine. We, we can deal with that. It just, it just shows how gracious we are. Maybe that's what she's saying. Here's what we do know. We do know that there is, a, in this city, this industrialized trade guilds, and they're a big deal. Again, American Medical Association, Screen Actors Guild, National Association of Realtors. And their gatherings, in these celebrations, they, they worship the God of their trade. It's just, it's just common. It's just, this is just a part of the culture. This would be similar to the weird stuff that happens in the Freemasonry. In the church, Freemasonry is allowed to go on unchecked, even though... It's a secret organization. All I can do is read the books that are read about it. But they're not preaching the gospel. It's a false god they're worshiping. And yet, here's what I want you to see. This this is not long ago and far away. This is what we're dealing with right now. They're gatherings. They're they're known for these other gods. And if you've ever been in corporate America, you know that whenever you get a whole bunch of people, business people together, and they open up the bar, sexual immorality is closely coming behind. This is just what we see, a big immoral mess. And it's very likely she's teaching people, listen, it's okay. Jesus understands. He knows you've got to feed your family. And he knows that they say this ceremony, this God. But we all know there's no real false God. We know that idols aren't real. Jesus understands. Gnostics of the day were even saying, hey, listen, it doesn't matter what you do with your body as long as your soul is dedicated to Jesus. Either way, she's leading God's people to sin. And so you tell me, why was Jesus upset with the church? Because they tolerated her. 
They just let it go on. They think about how countercultural verse 20 is. Tolerance is lifted up by many in our culture as the pinnacle of morality, of the pinnacle of love, of the pinnacle of what is good. This is why we constantly need the plumb line of God's truth. Because our culture is teaching us. Our culture is teaching our children tolerance. That's, that's the highest good. And Jesus says, this, this is what I have against you. You're tolerating sexual immorality and idol worship in the church. We have to be a people who love deeply and cling to the truth. Here's a question. Let's think about this. Why do you think maybe she was never confronted? Why not confront her? What? Quite possibly. This is, I mean, Rob said because they, they, want, they wanted it to continue. We, we, could, we could unpack this, but here's, here's, here's one thing that we know. Like, if, if you have a person, you're having, your, your conscience is, is, is being torn. I'm going to this trade guild. They're, they're doing this stuff to this other God. But listen, if I, say, if, if I get kicked out of the guild, imagine Nathan, if the American Medical Association took his certificate, took his certification. <laughs> Massive ramifications. For him or Jennifer's career, right? It would be easy to want it to be true. Why else? Why why else would, would a church tolerate known sin in the church? This is easy as falling off a log. Fear. Here's a woman of influence. Maybe people like her. Maybe they don't want to get on her bad side. Maybe there's just fear because, listen, there's so much. Let's look at verse 19. There's so much good happening in this church. Let's not rock the boat. It's going good. There's so much good. Let's not, let's not cause a problem with this. There's tons of social pressure. Imagine trying to practice law if you get rejected by the bar. There, there, there's a lot at stake. You, you, you can feel how contemporary this is. The, the, the florist said, I can't use my artistic ability to celebrate a same-sex wedding. Washington State fined her $135,000, and now they're coming after her for all their legal fees since 2013. Her business is done. There's such pressure in this society to just get on board. Go with the flow. And if you don't, it's going to cost you. We have, I have two kids getting ready to go back to college. Incredible amounts of pressure to just get on board with the revolution. Just fly under the radar. Just let it go. Or else. I'm not saying this is easy. Listen to this. This is... Uh, Albert Moeller wrote a whole book on this. I'll just read you just a little excerpt. In recent years, and, and, and just to set this up, 
there is incredible pressure for the church to cave. Somehow, we got to figure out how to love people radically the way Jesus loved people. He bled for his enemies. We got to get that. Like, I, I was thinking about this this morning, t- taking a shower. Like, would the people in evangelical circles, are we known as a people who would give our lives, lay down our lives for the homosexual community? We got to love like that while holding to the truth. Here's one more thing at stake. In recent years, we've been warned regularly that the millennial generation is increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity, specifically accusing conservative Christians of being intolerant on issues of human sexuality. In their book, Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons explains the gay issue has become the, quote, big one. The negative image most likely to be intertwined with Christianity's reputation. It is also the dimension that most clearly demonstrates the unchristian faith to young people today. Surfacing a spat of negative perceptions, judgmental, bigoted, sheltered, right-wingers, hypocritical, insincere, and uncaring. In a massive study of young adults, Kinnaman and Lyons found that the millennials identified a posture of judgment against homosexuality to be the number one reason millennials rejected or abandoned Christianity. In a second project, Kinnaman looked at the lives of young people inside the church and found a similar pattern. So many of these church-going young people expressed the concern that Christianity was simply too judgmental, especially on issues of sexual immorality, of sexual morality, homosexuality in particular. As Kinnaman explained, the ages 18 to 29 are the black hole of church attendance. This age is missing in action for most congregations. The missing in action often point to what they describe as the exclusivity, intolerant posture of the church as the reason for their absence. You see what we're up against? Somehow... We've got to learn to love radically while holding to the truth. In a way that if we, if we want to obey verse 25, we've got to figure out a way in order to communicate the gospel, to cling to the truth, to, to these millennials who think we're just all into, I mean, intolerant, where Jesus is saying, that's your problem, is that you're way too tolerant of this sin. Here's another lesson from the text. Don't underestimate the power in your own mind to justify your sin. Somehow, these these people in this trade, somehow the people in this church were able to justify, and it seems like what may have started out as good motives, to justify the tolerance of this sin. And and I I think about two, two things came to mind. The first is the whole situation with Ravi Zacharias. Now, I, I don't know his heart. It, maybe he was just a fraud. Or maybe what those women said he said is really what he believed. That he had somehow so justified in his mind that, 
that Jesus understands all the work that I do for Him, the incredible pressure that I am under, and I deserve this. Whichever way, it is very easy for us to justify sin. We make all kinds of excuses for our sin. I, I grew up in a church. I, I grew up in, if you're familiar with the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which, which now is just along just in line with most of the mainline Protestant denominations that have just, just caved in to the sexual revolution. I am convinced, some of them are probably just, they wake up in the morning, they know they're frauds. But for the people that I was with, the people that I knew, it sure seems like it started out as just of loving people the way Jesus loved people. And they slept into compromise. Unchecked compassion can easily lead to compromise. Again, we have to hold this, this plumb line up to ourselves. There's so much social pressure. Just compromise. And so we've got to learn to love people radically. And cling to the truth until he comes. It's not easy. <laughs> it is not easy. But I want to encourage you. This is the last point. There is great promise for those who persevere. Look at verse 25. Nevertheless, what you have... Hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give the authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as also I have received authority from my Father and I will give him the morning star. Sometimes I have this strange notion that if, if I'm doing what's right, that my life ought to be easy. And it comes out when I complain when it's not easy. The unspoken expectation, Jesus, if I follow you, you ought to make this thing go smooth. Anybody relate to that? Step back for a second and let's just be reminded who we're serving. My heart for you, my heart for me is that we would follow Jesus. Well, who is this Jesus? And what did He do? He gave His life to loving people. He loved His enemies. He, he loved, He was known as the one who loved tax collectors and sinners. He loved even the religious leaders who hated His guts. And you tell me what they do to Him. They crucified Him. That's the Jesus we follow. Here's reality. You can love people and they may still crucify you. This is why he says, let us go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. That's exactly what Jesus promises. Look at verse 26. 
He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father. Go back and read Psalm 2 this week. This is, this is such rich theology. Those promises you'll notice in, in your Bibles if you have the New American Standard, they're in all capital letters. He's quoting from Psalm 2. These are promises that were made to Jesus. But notice who are they being promised to in verse 26? The promises that were made to Jesus are being made now to his people who cling to him. Here's the gospel. Everything that Jesus earned is promised to those of us who trust him. Feel the power. We don't fear the judgment of the world because one day we're going to be judging the world. We don't fear their condemnation. We're going to be ruling them with Christ. Here's, here's reality. Right now, it's, it's dark in a lot of ways. We need to see the good, and we need to realize that, that the world, Paul calls this the, this present evil age. It is dark. But just over the horizon, the morning star is rising. Revelation 22 says the morning star's name is Jesus. <laughs> Light is breaking. And he's coming to claim what's his. Until then, we suffer. But we suffer in hope. And here's reality. Again, look at who you're following. It's that suffering. That's what it's going to take. To love people and to cling to the truth. Listen to this. Here's the end of the florist letter. When people learn that I face possible financial devastation if I lose this case, which now she has, they ask, would you do it again? Here's her answer. I would. And here's why. I've lived a lot of life, battled cancer, Experienced family turmoil, and through it all, I've learned two things. First, God is my source of life and meaning. I cannot turn my back on Him. My relationship with Him means more, so much more, than financial security. Second, life must be lived authentically, and Jesus is my authentic life. Following Him includes a lot that my opponents like, such as loving Rob, and serving him with excellence for nearly a decade. But it also includes the very reason why they're coming after me. I cannot separate parts of my faith if I hope to be genuine. I have eight children and 24 grandchildren. And I always plan to leave my business to them. But I put it all on the line because I know what's at stake in my case. The freedom to live with authenticity. Not just for me and for my grandkids but for everyone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are overwhelmed what you've called us to. To live with big hearts of genuine, self-sacrificing love.
and to hold fast to what is true that many of the people we're called to love absolutely hate. Father, I pray that you would leverage in our lives the power of hope. That we would gladly meet your son outside the city. Bearing his reproach. Because this is not our home. You've created us to rule. Give us grace to seek this mission that you've called us to. With faith. With love. With deep, unflinching hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.